Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Still Peaking. Today, I have my dear friend Michelle Wang here. And we actually first met at an SF house party where she was at the time working on her company Tether, which is play kits for kids to connect with their cultural heritage. Tether has since shut down and she's now a PM at Nimble, which is the startup helping the hiring process for teachers be more accessible. So thank you so much for joining me, Michelle. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yes. So maybe let's just jump right into it. Before founding Tether, you were a PM at Visa, right? Was that your first official job? Oh, yeah. It was my first job out of college. I was part of this APM, Associate Product Manager, rotational program. And it was a two-year rotational program at Visa for my first two years out of graduation. Mm -hmm. And those are pretty competitive programs to get into, right? Yeah. I I don't (laughs) know if I would say that Visa's was... I I mean, I got it. So I feel like... Actually, in my senior year of college, I never imagined that I would go into tech. I always thought that I would probably stay around LA because that's where I grew up and do like marketing at an entertainment company or something. Mm -hmm. But off a whim, I decided to apply to a couple of tech rotational programs and Visa was the one that stuck. So yeah. What ultimately made you decide to do the APM versus doing something, the, the marketing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I thought it was a good foothold into the tech industry. I don't come from a technical background. So getting into any kind of tech was, I thought it would be a good foot in the door if I ever wanted to continue in tech. And also I wanted to go to the Bay. I, I wanted to go to SF. I thought SF is a beautiful city that I've always wanted to live in for a little bit. And if I wanted to come back to LA and work in entertainment, that is always open for me, I think. So, and what was being, uh, you know, an APM and then ultimately a senior APM and then a PM at Visa like? It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was part of the very first cohort of Visa's rotational program. Oh, like the first the APM first oh, ever. ever yeah. Had. Okay. Yeah. So, I kind of knew going in that there would probably be some kinks with the program just because we're the first class, but I was down to take the gamble. And there was something like that appealed to me about the structure of a program as well, coming out of graduation, being surrounded with people like my age who are all kind of pursuing the same career path. I thought it'd be super fun. I think our first year we had some good structure there. Like every Wednesday we would have some kind of set like seminar or lessons to product management. And then that continued on for a couple months. And then we were assigned like mentors, peer mentors, as well as kind of like Uh, more senior mentors. So there was like a decent amount of structure. I would say that the structure began to fall through through a little bit. Like in the the second year, I think there wasn't as much mentorship as I would have liked. But by then, because I had the friendship and support of all my fellow cohort mates, it still ended up, I think, being the best decision for me. They don't pair you with a more senior PM when you're working on projects? Yeah. So there is a potential that you're paired with a senior PM. It just isn't like, it it highly depends like Mm -hmm. on whichever team you're on and who you're partnered with. I think the structure that the program gave us is that they gave us a peer mentor who was not a product manager, but worked adjacent with a product manager. So mine was like my peer mentor turned out to be like a communications person in like another part of Visa. And My senior mentor was like senior product manager from another team. And we would meet up consistently throughout the two years. Got it. Yeah, because being an APM and being a PM was, and I think still is, kind of a hot job that a lot of people want. So how did you feel when you were in that role? And at what point did you feel like, oh, this isn't enough or I want something a little bit more? 
mm. in my job. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely, like I said, it was really nice to be an APM just to have like the rest of my class and cohort with me and to, to forge such strong friendships out of graduation. I think when I realized it wasn't working for me anymore is honestly, I think being an APM is great, but the industry that you're an APM in or just a product manager in, in general really matters. Being a PM at one company can look completely different from being a PM at another company. And I realized at Visa, not only was I not super passionate about payments. I know some people who are. I think payments can be a really interesting field to be in. It just wasn't for me. And also being a PM at a large corporate company, being an APM, kind of it made me feel like a lot of the times that I was my manager's like assistant at times rather than actually having the agency to make my own strategic decisions, to make my own roadmap. I was basically their bitch. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like this, this like I'm doing bad. bitch work. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing bitch work. Like I'm making decks. Like I'm just, I'm not doing anything of like super big value. This is mm -hmm. work like an intern could be doing versus like I knew that I could do so much more. And so I think it was probably around like the two-year mark, like around when the program ended that I started thinking about next steps and what I wanted to do after the program. Did you ever express kind of those desires with your manager saying, I want to be challenged more, I want to take on more? And is that something that they could work with you on? Or is that kind of just what everyone does? Yeah. I mean, it was tough because the program, you go through four different rotations. So you're only on one team for six months. Mm. And so you know, by the time you start getting ramped up or you feel like you have a good understanding of your product, it's probably, you're probably already like two, three months in. And then like you can do good work for a little bit, maybe like a month or two before you start kind of transitioning off the team again. So mm -hmm. it's a really like quick, it's so quick that you don't really have the opportunity to make a ton of impact. I would chat with my managers every now and then like, oh, is there any you know, more direct work that I can do with designers or engineers. Like I'd love to be more involved in this, but the scale that Visa is on, like one of the teams that I was on, you know, we were trying to launch a product in all international regions, right? Like Samia, like Asia Pacific, like they couldn't really trust, you know, an APM rightfully so to, right. to make strategic decisions for like a whole region. So the scale was just like on a whole nother level. So I totally get why, you know, it was the way it was, but it just wasn't for me. Right. And then later when you became a PM, did you have more responsibility? Slightly. I started being, you know, tugged into more strategic meetings, but the bureaucracy still kind of remained the same. It was an interesting one. I, I was an APM for two years and then I was promoted to a senior APM. I was a senior APM for maybe like six to nine months, something like that, before I got promoted to being a PM. Is that a pretty normal track or was that pretty quick? I think it was pretty quick. Again, like it really depends on the manager you met, like mm -hmm. after the rotational program. And my manager just happened to be very supportive and like a really big advocate for my work, which was so important. I know my much smarter peers who didn't get promoted as fast simply because they didn't have managers who advocated for them. So it really depended on the team that you were on and the manager you had. But yeah, it was it was pretty quick. And then I was a PM for another maybe like six months before I quit Visa as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you, well, naturally then, <laughs> you know, why'd you quit? I quit because I was, I was cooking. Like after, <laughs> after the, the two years at Visa, after the two year mark, I, I started cooking and thinking about what I wanted to do after Visa. And I actually, I had this idea and I had a really good friend 
Uh, her name is Megana, and she was one of my closest friends in the APM program. And every time we would hang out, like every happy hour, every like random hangout, I would always like plugged her. I'd be like, hey, wouldn't it be really fun if we start something of our own? What if we quit our jobs? What if we quit our jobs? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Only if you're serious. <laughs> Unless. <laughs> Unless. And I, I planted the seeds with her for probably like nine months mm. before she finally caved. She finally caved to my charms and she was like, yeah, I'm down. Let's start something. So you didn't know what you wanted to do yet. You just knew you wanted to start something with her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had an idea of what I was interested in. And from my experience, I've always tried to chase people in that like I wanted to make sure I secured a co-founder that was, you know, intelligent, passionate, driven, someone I trusted. And so when I chose Megana. I had an idea of what I wanted to do, but I wasn't married to it by any means. I had like a couple of ideas of of different areas, different ideas. And there were like maybe like two ideas where I was like, oh, I would really like to do this, but I want to hear what Megana thinks first. It was kind of like a mixture, like a marriage of both, I think. Like I chose Megana and I, I had already thought of some ideas, but if Megana also had some awesome ideas that I hadn't considered yet, I totally would have been down to go a different direction. Mm -hmm. So you and Megana quit at the same time? Yes. And at the time then, did you guys, have you, did you decide on an idea we did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because Megan and I are, I think we approached things a little differently in that I was a little bit more reckless and I was like, let's just quit today. Like we don't need an idea yet. Like we can just, you know, figure it out as we go. And I think Megan was like, no, no, like let's, let's keep our jobs for a little bit. Let's work on this part-time. Let's nail down an idea. Let's nail down the need, the market size, like figure out a plan. And then once we feel like this is enough to take a gamble on, we can quit our jobs and go at it full time, which was a very reasonable, <laughs> reasonable way to go about things. So we by the time Megan and I had quit, we had been working on Tether part time for about a year. Mm, yeah. OK, so tell me more about Tether. Yeah, Tether is so near and dear to my heart. Our one-liner is that we help connect young kids and their families to their cultural heritage. And it was really born out of this idea that knowing yourself means knowing your culture. Knowing your culture leads you just to more general kind of happiness and self-fulfillment towards the rest of your life. I am like a second generation Korean American. My parents immigrated here when they were in their 20s. I grew up speaking, you know, Korean at home and like English everywhere else. I wouldn't say I have a super unique story with like being an immigrant kid, but what I did realize is that in my 20s, and I think this is common, uh, in my 20s and in college, I started to become really curious about my culture and really curious about my parents and how they grew up. And by really diving deep into that, I was able to really come to peace with my identity. And that's just a feeling that I wish for for every, you know, immigrant kid, Asian American kid as, as they grow up in, in this country. And so I, I think Megana also felt the same way. She's Indian and Chinese American. So being like a mixed race, yeah. she had a very different, she had a different experience with that as well. So we wanted to kind of use our own experiences and use the ideas of what we wished we had as kids mm -hmm. and create that for kids today. So what was the actual like format of helping kids connect with their cultural heritage? Yeah. So the format that we landed on was a physical like play kit or activity kit. In the activity kit, there is a variety of different items like a children's. Uh, so 
the the play kit is designed around a specific theme. For example, we had like a Korean tether line and one of the boxes was about the Korean flag and independence. And so we had a couple of items in there. We had a children's book around like Independence Day. We had like a small Korean flag for kids to play with. We had an educational booklet that we had worked together with a professor from SFSU, San Francisco, gosh, like State, State University, University. <laughs> State University, who, who majored in Korean studies. And I worked with that professor to help write that booklet in a, in a kid-friendly educational way that's still fun. Was that the first format that you guys thought of or was it something that you guys iterated on a few times? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, we did start off with the idea of a play kit. We, we tossed around a couple of ideas. We were like, oh, can we make like a fun card game for, for parents and kids to do together and have like intentional conversations? Can we do this? Can we do that? But ultimately, we really wanted to do like a physical good because there's something I think very meaningful about creating a physical space in your household with a parent and a child like sitting together and going through this, these activities together and carving out that time. So that is like a moment that we wanted to incorporate into families' lifestyles. So the physical good was very intentional. And then I think when we thought about it at the beginning, like something we got stuck on was like culture. What is culture, right? Culture can be so many different things. There's so many different facets to it. It can be food, it can be language, it can be history, it can be clothing. Because there's so many different parts of culture, if we're trying to connect kids to their culture, we need to introduce like different pieces of culture to them in bite-sized pieces. And with kids, like we need to make it engaging. We need to make it fun. We need to make it hands-on. And so I think the idea of a play kit or activity kit had always kind of been in the cards. It was just like the, what is the specific format in it? And what are the specifically like different kinds of activities we wanted to include part that we iterated on um, mm-hmm. over time. Amazing. CPGs or consumer product goods are notoriously hard to do because sometimes the margins aren't very high. And then because you have a physical good, you have to deal with dis- uh, like manufacturing and supply chain and logistics and distribution. And you and Megna as first time founders, first time at a startup and founding your own startup. What was that experience like having to learn everything essentially it was not pretty (laughs) (laughs) there were so many learning experiences about just like honestly the stupidest things like (laughs) what kind of paper do we need to print like educational booklets on how do we bind something you know what is trying to figure out shipping was like such a nightmare on average I think a lot of like packages take like cost $12 to ship like across the nation or something something insane like 12 to 25 dollars like that was the range that we saw and how much was a play kit the play kit was like 20 bucks right (laughs) i was like the margins were not they were not making sense and so i think there were just a ton of learnings about how to order things how to time things how to balance like if we order in bulk, we can bring the costs down, but that also brings the risk up, the risk of just having a lot of inventory and not selling out. So balancing these different types of risks with CPGs, I think, can be really difficult. Yeah, it wasn't pretty. I think we we learned a lot through mistakes, but it was, it was very necessary to go through all that. Where were they being made and did you have to go out to the factories? We basically, like, I designed everything in Canva. And in Canva. In Canva. Were you a Canva Pro user? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Canva Pro user. 
I, I designed everything in Canva and Google Docs. And then we had a designer who worked with us to kind of design what the actual box design would look like. And then in terms of ordering the goods, yeah, we ordered online for a lot of like raw materials to come to us and we assembled it ourselves. Oh, and, so you made the play kit. Yeah, in my living room. You were the factory. <laughs> I was the factory. <laughs> I was the factory. I was the factory worker. I was, I was everything. So okay. yeah, I, I have a lot of core memories of like me and my friends up in SF putting like an assembly line together and and packing like a lot of boxes in one night and me treating them to like pizza afterwards because that's all I could do and that's all I could afford at that time to treat them with but um yeah it was it was fun times but yeah yeah. that seems like a fun time just everyone sitting on the floor yeah working and then having pizza afterwards yeah no it was fun it was fun and yeah my my friends are are awesome but it was definitely a date, like a moment of just like, wait, we're very like high paid tech professionals. Like, what are we, we doing, doing on a floor? Labor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are we doing? Like folding tissue paper this nicely and like trying to wrap these these boxes. Right. But yeah, I mean, it was fun. Yeah, that's so funny. Did you and Megna ever, I mean, I feel like living in SF, all you hear about is like venture funding or venture backed startups. Did you guys ever, you know, raise money for Tether? We tried. We tried. And that was actually the first thing that we tried to do when we went full time on Tether. Because Megan and I both had runways for about a year. Um, Just like from your own savings? From our own savings to cover kind of like basic needs, rent, whatever. But then after a year, it would start to get a little bit dicey. And so if we really wanted to pursue Tether and Tether, especially as a CPG, where it's very capital intensive at the beginning to to just like get all these materials out, we knew that we probably needed some help. And so it was a really odd time. Like it was right when the economy was starting to tank a little bit. It's like 2020, 2021. Yeah. Beginning of 2021, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is when like tech layoffs were starting to happen. And it was kind of a scary time. A lot of investors were drawing out of risky investment decisions at the time, much less like no one was trying to meet with these like new founders who like their first time founders, you know. So I think we did manage to get a couple of conversations. The good thing about Tether is that it's a very niche product. It's, you know, for young kids, it's for Asian Americans, it's about culture, it's the CPG. So the investors that are interested in those industries and sectors were few. They were just a few and it's such a niche that it was easy to reach out to the ones who might be interested. But when we had a conversation with them, you know, it was a hard sell. It was a hard sell to them about like the potential of this product, simply because like the main driver for me and Megan to do this product was based off of like personal experience, like anecdotal experience Mm -hmm. rather than a lot of data. So I can see now like why investors thought it was so risky back then. So we tried to raise funding. We did not succeed. And we actually ended up bootstrapping at the end of the day. That makes sense. Yeah. How much did you and Megna like invest into Tether yourselves? It's a good question. I definitely say I think like up to 10,000 for each of us. So looking back, it was not a crazy yeah. investment but it certainly felt like it at the time we were yeah. just like money's just like slipping out of our fingers and and right. ten thousand as in it's not counting like our, our living costs or anything right. like and that you weren't paying yourself we weren't paying ourselves it's just like the the money that we pulled into keeping tether running right so yeah right so it's like every day you're spending money on rent you're spending yeah. money on living the company yeah anything else that comes up yeah yeah. I feel like if I did this, my parents would freak out immediately. <laughs> How did your parents react to you, you know, starting your own company, quitting your great job at Visa 
big corporate job. There was definitely some initial pushback, obviously, because out of genuine worry and um, they're like, you have such a good job. Like, why would you quit it? You should just stay there for the next 20 years. And I'm like, that's not how the world works these days, uh, mom and dad. But eventually it was actually a much easier sell than I anticipated, to be honest. And I think the reason for that is because... Well, I think there's probably two main reasons. Reason number one is my dad himself is an entrepreneur. He's a small business owner. My whole life, he, he like ran a car wash and now he's he's running a mochi donut shop called Mochi Nut out in Chino Hills. Mochi Nut in Chino Hills. <laughs> <laughs> mochi Nut in Chino Hills. And just like knows what it's like, like yeah. knows what the entrepreneur life is like. And did he ever work for someone else or has he always just been like, can't work for other people? I think. Yeah, like my whole life, he's never worked for another person. I think maybe ever since he's immigrated over here, he's always been an entrepreneur. I think because we had that mutual understanding of what that lifestyle looks like, he he wasn't super against it. He was like, just do what your heart desires, which leads me into like the reason number two is that I think growing up, I had always been a relatively good kid. I never took like a ton of risks. I, I never did dangerous things. Like if I ever did something, I always had a good reason for it. And so I think I developed a lot of trust with my parents in that regards like they never had to ask me about my grades like it, it was very much like if I didn't get good grades I would blame myself like I I was very much like held myself to a high standard and so I think that when I came to my parents it wasn't like a hey I'm just gonna quit my job and I'm gonna do this it was like hey mom and dad I've thought about this for for a year like I've been working on this idea I think it has a lot of potential I'm working on it with a friend I have ideas for how to grow this I am planning on quitting my job and working on this for a year if I don't meet these success metrics then I'll go back and find a job you know it was very like I had a plan and I, I explained like my my thinking as to why I was doing this and my parents just agreed. They were like, you've never given us any trouble before. Like, I'm sure you have a good reason for wanting to do this. So yeah, yeah I think it was not as hard of a sell as I expected. And okay. they were very understanding. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm sure it must have meant a lot too. <sighs> yeah, it, it meant a ton. I remember the very first market that we sold tether boxes at. It was actually in L.A., and my parents came to, oh, to support and uh, they bought like three boxes and my dad just slips me like a $100 bill and he's like, good work. And, you know, I was, it's very like symbolic, right? I was like, this is very full circle. Mm -hmm. I'm working on a product that's designed to help bring families closer together through culture. And here my family is supporting me at the very first market that I'm selling tether boxes at. So definitely made me a little emotional at the time. It was it was very nice. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so sweet too. Yeah. And so you mentioned success metrics. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. How did you and Magna, I mean, you had a runway of about a year, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you probably discussed when you started it. But how did you think about success and growth and progress month over month? Great question. Megan and I are both product managers. And so we both came in with a very structured way of thinking. We were like, what's our roadmap? Like, what is, you know, the success metrics that we want to hit like every couple months? But I think what we quickly realized is I think a lot of people say that product managers make some of the best founders. I don't think a lot of people talk about why product managers might not be good founders. <laughs> and the reason why I bring this up is that I think Megan and I both had such such structured ways of looking at things that it never goes according to plan. Like when you're doing your own business, when you're starting something from scratch, any success metrics that we had, we were kind of like pulling out of our asses 
And if we didn't meet those success metrics, it felt really bad. But it was also like, man, it's our first time doing this. Like, should we just like forgive ourselves and move on? Like, there was a lot of uncertainty about like the right way to go about things versus like in product management, there's always some kind of framework to think about things to prioritize. There's always kind of like a not like a right answer, but like something that like it's been done before. Been done we know before. like if we hit this, it's going to be good yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I think when we first started, we had laid out a rough roadmap, right? Like we wanted to spend the first couple months, like I was really focused on reaching out to investors. Megan was going to focus more on the product development and kind of getting the the company set up. We were going to apply some start to some startup accelerators. Those three months actually turned into six months. And because things go wrong, because things go wrong, <laughs> things go wrong. No one was responding to us. The economy had tanked. We were just like, oh, shoot, like nothing is going according to plan. Yeah. At the end of the six month mark, I was like, dude, <laughs> I don't think we're going to get any funding. I think we need to make a decision here if we're going to bootstrap it or not. And if we bootstrap it, we need to make another roadmap because the one we had made before isn't going to work. You're like, we're already three months behind schedule. Yeah, we're already three months behind schedule. And our savings account is dwindling each month. And so I think when we made the decision to bootstrap, then we started to change our, our strategy. And this is actually one of the things that I reflect a lot about. When we decided to bootstrap, we were really conscious about money, obviously, because we only had about six months left of runway at that point. And if we were going to bootstrap, that six months was probably going to shrink a little bit because we're spending our savings um, into Tether. So we began to structure some of our success metrics around how much revenue can we make? How many customers can we get? And I actually now, now like a year out of the experience, I kind of look back at that and I, I challenge like whether that was the right way to look at things. Of course, I think it's very important when you start a business that you have people that are willing to pay for your product. But to base your success off of how much revenue you're getting each month is honestly like bound for failure. Like it, it's just like, you never know how those first few months are going to be. And so instead of basing your success metrics based off of re revenue, basing your success metrics on learning, learning goals mm -hmm. like each month and proving different hypotheses right or wrong, I feel like would have maybe been a better approach back then. Because looking back, I think like six months in, we were just like, we want to get paying customers. Let's just create this MVP and like, let's let's try to find people to buy it instead of like going back and saying like, oh, we have all these assumptions about our customers. We have all these assumptions about this like problem that we're trying to solve. Buy. Yeah. Yeah. And we were just like really fully like we hadn't really tested those out. We hadn't really pressure tested those as much as we could have. And now looking back, I'm like, yeah, maybe instead of being so focused on our dwindling kind of runway, maybe it would have been better to be more focused on the learning milestones along the way. So kind of more early stages, spend more time on experimenting and figuring out what exactly is the product that people want to buy. Yeah. And then like eventually down the road, once you have like that product market fit or really figure it out, then you go out and do the sales. Yeah. Basically, how can we be as lean as possible? And that that was something that we struggled with a lot because not only is Tether a CPG, but it's also a play kit that has a bunch of different items in it. It's not just like one item. We had maybe like five or six items in each box and acquiring or like putting together these items took a lot of time, took a lot of money. And looking back, like there's almost this like fear of like if you put a shitty product out into the market, it reflects poorly on yourself. Mm -hmm. Like if your friends or family see this product, it can be kind of embarrassing because you're like, you know, I, I can do better than this. Right. 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 But really, like 
conquering that fear and being like, it's okay to put shitty products out in the market. Like that's what an MVP is for, right? Like it's, this is not the final product. This is not the final form. This is just one iteration, like, and we're continuing to make improvements along the way. And so really the, the Tetherbox MVP, I think was way too fleshed out. Actually looking back, like it was a very polished like MVP. And I wonder if we could have been a bit more lean about what MVP looks like and not have added so many items or, you know, spent so much money on, on developing it out right. and instead focus that time and effort on, yeah, like uh, proving hypotheses wrong or, or finding like early adopters who would work with us and stuff like that. So the kind of quantity over quality. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think it's something that I, I feel like because like content creators or I guess founders maybe have this in common where like when you're in the midst of becoming something great, you have to be something shitty first. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and there's like this like, cringe hill that yeah. you have to climb because when you start you're going to be really bad at it because yeah. you've never done it before and yeah. it's like you know some people are laughing behind your back or yes. like, like like oh look at this like terrible thing or like yeah. how embarrassing for them yeah but you got to just kind of like embrace and be like I'm in the middle of manifesting yes and it's gonna get better no exactly exactly it was for me, <laughs> for me, it's like a fear of being perceived. Almost, I was like, people don't perceive me. I just want to like work on this in private. Like, I don't want to share any failures if it happens. I yeah. only want to share the successes. And so, inevitably, like you know, we had a Kickstarter at first to to raise at least like a little bit of capital for Tether, like a mm -hmm. friends and family. How round. did that go? And it went great. Like yeah. we we smashed our goal out of the park. Our friends and family were so supportive, but man, posting about like a friends and family Kickstarter, asking for money from my friends and family to fund an idea I did not know would succeed took a different level of guts, I think, for me. Like I, it's really hard for me to ask for help in, in general in like other parts of my life. And so to ask for help and money from people I really care about to bet on me was a very uncomfortable feeling. Right. But yeah. Right. Because then you feel responsible for their investment. Exactly. Too. Exactly. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of eyes like uh, through people's best intentions. Like they keep checking in. They're like, how's it going? Like, you know, yeah, people have really good intentions. But that's another thing I found out as a founder. Like everyone has ideas about your business and like what you can do with it. And it's your job as a founder to like filter that out and like thank everyone for their input but ultimately like keep the ship sailing in the direction it needs to go so yeah. and kind of on on that note what do you think was one of the hardest things about building a company or building tether the hardest part man there were there were a lot of hard parts i think that people might not expect perhaps when you're starting a company and i think this is pretty universal across any startup or founder experience, but you're really waiting in a vast, large sea. Like there are lots of articles and information out there, but it's your job as a founder to parse through and find like the specific things related to your idea or your startup and construct a story out of it to convince people why this is a good product, why this is a good idea, why this is so disruptive. And for me, there was like something a little like morally or ethically like, like it bugged me a little bit because I was like, oh, like there's all this data to show that an idea like this could succeed. But if I dig a little more, there's also an equal amount of data that shows like why this wouldn't succeed. Um, but I, I 
cherry pick like the things that are most applicable to the success of, of my business and my startup. And soon enough, it just, it felt like I had to say it like a thousand times for me myself to believe in the idea, if that makes right. sense. Right. Because there's so many reasons and so many factors on like why it won't work. Yeah. You have to kind of like stay delusional yeah, so that exactly. you can keep going. <laughs> Staying delulu is the salulu. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think it was exactly like that. I try to be like a more logical and rational person. And so crossing that bridge of like, I need to be the biggest fan of my own product. I need to not like blindly, but like single-mindedly like move forward and believe that this is going to work. That was really hard. That was really hard for me. And at what point did you and Magna decide, okay, this just isn't going to work? So we had probably worked on Tether full-time for a year-ish. And Megan and I, uh, like I said before, we're really good friends, like on a personal level. As business partners, we found out that we had, you know, difference, like a lot of differences in our work styles and our leadership styles. And our business working relationship started to like fissure a little bit over, over the year that we were working together. I think that my co-founder's relationship to work is also looks a bit different from like my relationship to work. I think she likes stability. I think she likes mentorship from like people more experienced than she is. And being in a startup environment where you don't have any of None that, of that. <laughs> she burned out really quickly. And so mental health became like a topic of discussion between us. Sometimes, you know, she'd go off the radar for a couple of weeks at a time to kind of like get herself together and like come back and join me. And I think like those instances were happening more and more often, probably around like the nine or 10 month mark. And that's when we started to have a lot of discussions, like a lot of long discussions, hard discussions about, hey, like, you doing okay? Is is this something that you still want to be doing? I think we had a lot of like vulnerable conversations of like, you know, we're really good friends and we wanted to do this together. But like, honestly, this is really hard on me and all of that. And as a friend, of course, I'm like, please, like, take all the time you need. Like, your mental health is so important to me. But as a business partner, I was like, but every time you go away for a few weeks, it's just me, like, yeah. working on this. And that's really hard on me, too, right. to to kind of, like, for lack of a better phrase, is like, to pick up the slack, right? Which sounds so cutthroat, but it is kind of the way it is if right. it's just two people working on something. Yeah. So I think we were getting to the one-year mark, and there was big decision point. It was holiday season. Holiday season was coming up and holiday season is notoriously known across like all CPG products. This is when you make like, and it like a lot of your year's revenue. We had heard statistics from other founders in similar industries. They were like, yeah, we made like 80% of our yearly revenue between like October to December. Like gifting season. Yeah. Gifting Black season. Friday. Black, right. Exactly. And so if people are just like more generous, like, and so we were just like, this is our opportunity to kind of like reach the success metrics that we had initially decided upon. And so we did this big push. We like did this professional photo shoot. We like, I set up all this like equipment in my apartment. I got my my partner who's like a photographer to come in and take all the photos. We really like revamped our website. But what actually ended up happening is that we did all these things, but the last push didn't really happen as in like, we were supposed to run some ads. We were supposed to like film a lot of social media content to like get people to the website to buy the boxes. But I think that part fell through because we were just running out of steam. I think we were running out of steam. We were running out of motivation. And that's when I basically had my like one of 
the biggest conversations I've had with my co-founder. I was like, hey, this was our shot and we missed it. This was our last shot before you know, our year mark. I think that's when we had to seriously consider. We we're like, yeah, I don't think this makes much sense to continue on anymore. Yeah. We, we lost our opportunity. A holiday season is already well underway. And if we couldn't pull this off, if we couldn't pull off like a holiday drop, like uh, the, the upcoming obstacles would just be like too hard for us to bear. So I think we had a serious conversation and we were both like, okay, like let's just go job search for a little bit. Let's see what happens. We can work on tether like part-time while we job search i ended up finding a job in the new year and then my co-founder just wanted to take some time off like from work in general and i think pretty gradually tether started to sizzle away a little bit which is like it is what it is it was definitely like a little bit sad to see the idea just kind of fizzle away but it was for the best i think yeah did you ever blame your co-founder for you know, did you ever think like after it ended, did you think like, oh, she was like more present or anything else? Like maybe we could have kept going or was Mm. there was there any sort of resentment? I mean, truthfully, yes. When it all happened, it was a very like emotional time for me. But six months down the line, a year down the line, I have finally kind of stepped back from the incident Mm. enough to kind of look at it more logically. And at the end of the day, I feel like I I'm just like I take responsibility for all my actions. I was like, I chose her. I was like, this is my co-founder. And I I feel like I probably kind of dragged her into all of this. <laughs> and maybe she's like, you did this to me. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> my mental health is in shambles because you did this. Actually though, actually though, and I think that there were a lot of times where I maybe like pushed harder than I should have or I let my pride get in the way. You know, from the very beginning, I think we had like some fissures when we were trying to decide the company structure. We were like, who's the CEO going to be? Which is like obviously always like a really awkward conversation. Mm. Um, so who was the CEO? We couldn't really decide. And maybe that was the first like beige red flag but for legal purposes we did have to have someone be the ceo and that was me but in practice and this is what we agreed on we're like we're equal like 50 50 you know etc another learning moment though is i was like that never works like you you always need a decision maker you always needed to be at least like 51 49 and the relationship between the co-founders has to be such that the one who is the decision maker has earned the trust of their other co-founder to to make the final call. And I, I didn't do that. So I, I think ultimately, like logically looking back from it all now, I'm just like, it was so emotional at the time. And of course, there were thoughts of like, man, like what would it have looked like if I you know, had a different co-founder or if I had just done this by myself? Like, of course, there were so many what ifs, but rather than kind of getting buried in those types of thoughts, I, I feel like it's much more helpful to think about the things that I've learned, things that I was thankful for and take those into my next experience if I have one. Yeah, that's amazing. And now you, you do work at a startup. I do. Yeah. How... Has working at, you know, Nimble colored your reflections on Tether in any way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the place that I work at right now is probably like the perfect blend of my past like work experiences. It has all 
you know, like the structure that I had at my corporate job before, but it has like, like I'm really passionate about the industry that I work in now. I'm really passionate about providing, you know, kids in classrooms with the best quality teachers that they can get. And I work with really brilliant people who are very smart and very good at what they do. I work for a female CEO, which is very, very rare. And I think like over 50% of the, the startup is people of color. You know, it's such a great working environment that combines the things that I loved the most about my past work experiences, which is really, really unique. Actually, right now, something that's like new with Nimble is that we have been exploring different areas to expand the company into. So I'm part of one of like the discovery groups into sizing the opportunity to seeing, you know, how we can monetize this. And this experience has really given me like it echoes a lot of what Tether used to be like for me, except I'm working with people who are more senior than I am and who are smarter than I am and seeing how they approach the unknown and like structure it, organize it, put together teams has been invaluable for me as I, I look back at Tether and I'm like, what could I have done better? They also remind me that there is like a thing called intuition. I think my intuition was shit like <laughs> when, when I was doing Tether, honestly, like when I was younger, obviously, and intuition comes with time, it comes with age, it comes with maturity. And that's just not something that you can like learn it's just something like uh learn like by yourself it's something that you learn over time so yeah through nimble i'm kind of sharpening my intuition a little bit i'm trying to learn from people that are way smarter than me so that's amazing if there was one piece of advice you'd give to your past self or give to anyone who's trying to start a company for the first time what would it be as a Good question. Would you have done Tether again? Like knowing what you know now mm. at the time, would you have done Tether? Yes, I definitely would have done Tether. I think the way that I would have approached it might be slightly different. But I think the experience of doing Tether and Tether's idea are, are not things that I would ever trade for anything. Like I, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. What I would say is there are a couple of pieces of advice. I think Number one is choose your co-founder well. I still stand by my decision for choosing my friend as my co-founder. But something that, you know, a lot of people actually advise me about, but I ignored at the time was that, you know, co-founders should have compatible and like different skill sets. Megan and I were both product managers and we came from very similar backgrounds. And so at the end of the day, like it was almost like the blind leading the blind. Like, yeah, having someone who has a very different skill set is invaluable to building out the team for your business. There are questions that I would encourage any like founder to think about before they really take the plunge to do a business. Number one, like why you? Like why are you the best person to build this product? Why are you the best team to build this product? Number two is, yeah, why your product? Why why do you think your product can succeed amongst like all of the other products in the market? What makes you so special? And if you can nail the questions to uh, the answers to those two questions, I think you'll already be in really good shape. Those were the two questions I struggled with the most as I was talking with investors. And I was like, man, like I have no clue. <laughs> but if you think about those questions and you have a good answer for them, then I think you're in good shape. Right. And now that you know those questions and you've had founder experience, you've had startup experience, would you start your own company in the future? Oh, absolutely. I think I would. <laughs> um, if you asked me even just like six months ago, I might have said 
I'm so burned out from Tether. Like, never I, again. Never <laughs> again. But I think recently, actually, like in the last couple months, I've been finally had some time to reflect a lot on my time with Tether. And it took me a while, but I'm, I feel a little bit more recovered after, after closing up Tether and closing up shop. It's a different kind of like, hurt to close up a business to basically dissolve your business and like take down the website take down the social media it's like it never existed even though so rough even though it was like so much of your time and energy it was like your entire heart Um, worse than a breakup yeah yeah (laughs) worse than a breakup way worse than a breakup actually It, it was so heartbreaking and so it took me a while to recover from that but I am now at a place in my life where I would be down to do something again if I come across an idea that really resonates with me well Thank you so much for joining me, Michelle, and hearing all about your experience with Tether and building it. And let us know if you ever start a new company. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Thanks for being a great host. (laughs) And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. (laughs) And if you want to connect with Michelle, you can find her on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and I'll drop all of her socials down in the bio section below. All right. Bye. Bye.